I am so happy to see everyone here. It's almost like a reunion. This is an excellent group. We have a great turnout. Thank you very much for coming. I'm Liz Brailsford, President and CEO of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. And welcome to our program with Professor and Author Jeremy Surrey. And also, we uh, will be having a conversation with our President Emeritus Jim Falk, seated here together. Thank you so much. We are gathered tonight. <laughs> We are gathered tonight in honor of the 2022 Gail Kotman History Lecture this evening. I'd like to extend a special thanks to Ed and Catherine Kotman for their generous lecture endowment and their support. Thank you very much. I'd also like to thank Cher and Dave Jacobs for their uh, support also of tonight's program. We appreciate you. Dave is on our board. He's our vice chair. And Dave, thank you very much. Cher, you as well. I want to thank just a couple of other partners. We're at the Hotel Crescent Court, one of our longtime partners. We thank them and also a few of our council's institutional members, NEC Corporation of America and Lockheed Martin. And uh, also American Airlines, they're a longtime partner and they helped bring our speaker to us today. So Jeremy, I hope your flight went well. Wonderful. Good. That's all I need to hear. I just want to say that if you're not a member of our council yet, and I know a lot of us here are, we'd love to have you join our engaged uh, membership. And you can find all of our membership options on our website at dfwworld.org. I'd really love to have you with us. Every membership counts, so thank you. And now I'd like to introduce one of the sponsors of tonight's program, our vice chair, as I mentioned, Dave Jacobs. Dave, thank you very much. I'll add my welcome to everyone. Uh, we so appreciate you being here and uh, being in attendance for this. I will just tell you, we are in for a very, very special treat. Uh, I promise you. It is an honor for me to introduce our speaker and our very good friend and a preeminent U.S. historian and a wonderful friend to this council. Thank you, Jeremy. Jeremy is a professor at the University of Texas at Austin in the Department of History and also the LBJ School of Public Affairs where he holds the Mac Brown Distinguished Chair for Leadership in Global Affairs. That's quite a title, by the way. <laughs> Professor Surrey teaches award-winning courses on strategy and decision-making, on globalization, on international relations, and history. His accolades include being named one of America's top young innovators and the Pro Bainey Meritus Award for contributions to the liberal arts in 2007 and in 2018, respectively. And just to add a little icing on the cake, he's been named an outstanding professor at UT, the President's Associates Teaching Excellence Award. And I think this speaks, this award speaks to Jeremy's strong belief that the students he is, he is educating, they will be the leaders that will save this country and its democracy. And I, and I mean that from the bottom of my heart. He's, he's totally dedicated to that. Surrey writes for various major 
publications, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Dallas Morning News, and many others, including the LA Times, the New York Daily News, and the Atlantic, and that long list goes on. Uh, he has authored and edited 11 books on politics and foreign policy. He is also a popular lecturer and appears frequently on radio and television. Professor Surrey hosts a weekly podcast called This is Democracy. For you that have not heard this, it is a very good podcast. Jeremy is also a life member of the Council on Foreign Relations. He joins us to talk about the subject of his most recent book, Civil War by Other Means, America's Long and Unfinished Fight for Democracy. In it, he shows how resistant to a more equal union began, be, began immediately and argues that there was never a united country post-Civil War. But what emerged was a country striving to rebuild and unite, but ultimately has been unable to to the present date. What should have been a moment of national renewal was ultimately wasted with reverberations still felt today. Our moderator for this conversation and our good friend needs no formal induction, introduction, but I'm gonna give him one anyway. <laughs> Jer Jeremy is joined in conversation tonight by Jim Falk, President Emeritus of the World Affairs Council, who retired in March 2021, after serving as president since 2001. He now resides in Santa Fe. He is a member of the board of Global, Global Santa Fe, where he chairs, of all things, the Programs Committee. <laughs> Additionally, Jim co-hosts the McQuiston program that airs weekly on KERA. He is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, and he is the honorary consul of the country of Morocco. Please join me in welcoming two American patriots and inviting Jeremy Surrey and Jim Falk to the stage. Introduction. Thank you, well, deserved, my friend. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Just go ahead, leave. Shake my hand. <laughs> All right. That's the way where, he wants where do to you be. prefer to Right here. Okay. What a. Hey, everybody. It sure is nice to be in my other home, and it is wonderful to be with you again. You know, I, I'm going to talk about Gail Kopman for, for a minute or two, and we're going to talk about really the role of history and, and curriculum. Um, one of the happiest days of my life was when uh, Catherine and I were very good friends. And I said, Catherine, could we have breakfast at Angela? And she goes, why do you want to do that? I said, you remember it? I said, I want to have a real business conversation with you. And I asked her if she would, if she had thought about making a special gift in honor of her mom, who was a seventh grade history teacher at Good Shepherd Episcopal School. And then once we did that, I said to Ed, I know we meet at Starbucks after the Wednesday bike ride, but could we meet on Thursday? And Ed made a generous gift as well. And why this is important is that Gail Kotman loved history, and she loved people who could teach history. 
Now, you all can't see this picture right here, but you can. Yes. Tell everybody who that is. That is David McCullough. And David McCullough, and it's a picture of Gail and, and, and Mr. McCullough, just like what you believe, history should be fun. Yes. History should be something where you don't read out of a textbook. And I remember Jeremy being at a, I don't know if Lucy's, Lucy Billingsley's not here, but we had dinner with um, David McCullough at Lucy's house. And David McCullough just railed against uh, schools of education. Hmm. He said the best history teachers are someone who has written a book or has lived history, and there's nothing really more damaging to discourage people to study history than uh, a textbook. And Gail would bring students to programs, and she would drill them about the questions they would ask. They'd sit at the table straighter than anybody. They'd shake hands with the speaker. And so she was a remarkable woman, a teacher just like you are at the university. When you look at the Gail Kopman lecture, and Liz, I hope you'll always keep a record of this, the first speaker was Doug Brinkling, then uh, Peter Baker and uh, his wife, um, Susan Glasser, then David Rubenstein, and now the cream of the cream, <laughs> Jeremy Surrey. So welcome, and again, much love to Gail Kopman. <clears throat> so, you know, history is experiencing a lot of criticism. Yes. And the president of what is it, the American Historical Society, mm -hmm. uh, made up of academics, uh, James Sweet, mm -hmm. he got a lot of criticism a few months ago for a letter that he wrote, and he talked about presentism, about historians address present and maybe they're beginning to ignore too much of the past. And so I'd like to begin our conversation by asking you, how do you view the role of historians and how do you view your role? Well, first of all, Jim, <laughs> it's such an honor to be here and to be part of the uh, Gail Kopman Lecture Series. And thank you for having, having me here. Thank you to so many of my friends who I haven't seen in a few years. I feel like this is a big reunion. It is, yeah. And we can just keep, keep celebrating rather than working, right? <laughs> um, so I think about history uh, as essentially about providing us a diagnosis of our present. That's different from being presentist. Presentist history is using your current politics to define how you view the past. That's not acceptable. That's called bias. But there are important questions from the present that are crucial for us when we go back and look at the past. So it is perfectly appropriate, uh, I think, to do what I do in my book. Obviously, I think it's appropriate, which is to ask uh, how we as a democracy can be at the same time the greatest democracy in the world and also such a deeply flawed democracy. Where do our flaws come from? And the historical uh, insight is to say that the flaws we see are manifest by particular individuals, but rarely are they created by those individuals. More often than not, the people who create problems in our society are those who are exploiting pre-existing cracks and limitations within our institutions. So I think the role of the historian is to help us understand how the past influences our world today. I think of it in a very similar way to the way we think about our families. 
None of us are telling our kids to live as our grandparents did, I hope. But all of us recognize that our kids need to understand where their families have come from to better understand who they are and where they go in life. So history is a dialogue between the past and the present that gives us some chance to think about the future. So if you allow me, we talked about this sentence that I just loved in your book, and you know which one it is. History, this is in Jerry's book, and I said, how do you write this? And he goes, well, it did take me a little while to write this sentence. <laughs> history allows us to map the intricate roots buried in the soil, to understand how they were planted, and to appreciate how they have sprouted today. That, that, that is a wonderful phrase. So as Mr. Jacobs said, you've written a lot of books. Why this book? Because it is a departure from your typical, I'm the foreign policy specialist. Right, right, right. It's, it is a departure. Uh, and uh, long ago, I came to the conclusion that I was never going to write the same book twice. There are a lot of people who do that. <laughs> Uh, that I wanted every book to be an adventure and learning, but this book is still far different from the other kinds of books I've written, which were about Henry Kissinger and U.S. foreign policy and diplomacy. Uh, I've been shaken in the last six to seven years, and my good friend Bruce Ware in the back knows this. We've spent many, many an occasion talking about this. Uh, I, I, I'm in a sense embarrassed to admit this, but I'm someone who's an expert on U.S. history, Yet I've been surprised at how historically weak many of our democratic institutions are. I spent about 20 years writing books about how the United States could do a better job of spreading democracy overseas, because I think that's our job. I think that's our brand. How can you think of US foreign policy without thinking about democracy? And I did not pay enough attention to the weaknesses, the limitations of our own institutions. Now, don't get me wrong, I revere our institutions. Uh, but they clearly have within them ailments, weaknesses, cancers that we're seeing undermine their functioning today and jeopardize their future. And over the last six to seven years, I've been thinking and talking to my wife and my kids and my students, and we learn so much teaching our students, let's be honest, it's the questions our students ask. I've been trying to be better at answering their questions about how this is possible, how we could have an election that a large number of people continue to deny the veracity of how we can have uh, people storming into the US Capitol to stop the functioning of the US Capitol, people who claim to be those who support democracy and support the police. Um, and so this book was my expo exploration into that, Jim. Uh, and uh, I did not initially begin by writing a book about the 1860s, 70s, and 80s, which this book largely is. It starts with January 6th, 2021, then goes back to those 20 years after the Civil War, and then comes back to the present. But I found as I did the research that that period is the best analog for where we are now. We're not at the beginning of another Civil War. We're still fighting that first Civil War. And it's been there in front of our faces, but we haven't seen it. That's why I like the gardening metaphor. There are things beneath the soil that we don't see. They don't sprout up every season, but some seasons they do. Is it just that we don't want to see the I issues? I think it's that we don't want to see, and I think sometimes we have Because certain people benefit from it? Certain people benefit from them. It's uncomfortable. <clears throat> it's uncomfortable to talk about a lot of these issues. I thank you all for being here, because I think we all believe in democracy, but these are uncomfortable issues to talk about, right? 
it's much more pleasant to go rah-rah. Um, and so there, there are uncomfortable issues that we have to talk about. My belief is if you love your country as I do, and I want to make it clear, many of you know me, I will stand second to no one in love of my country. I'm the child of immigrants from India and Russia. I'm not supposed to be here. Lots of people were trying to kill off my family for a long time. I have eternal gratitude for this country for making it possible for my parents and grandparents to come here and make my life possible so I can have a job now where I get paid to do things no one in my family understands. <laughs> that's success. <laughs> so when you talk about democracy, that's a broad term. Define for us what you mean about the assault on democracy. Great question. Thank you, Jim. I think democracy at its core is what Lincoln says at Gettysburg. Government of the people, by the people, for the people. Government of the people, by the people, for the people. And the assault on our democracy that we're seeing today, which is an old assault, is from those who don't want all the people to actually have a say. And that's not new. The challenge of democracy is that if all people have a say, some people will have less say than they want. And we need to empathize, not at all sympathize, but empathize with those living in parts of the country who in 1865 woke up one morning and found that the four million slaves who were their largest source of wealth as their property were now going to be potential voters in their community, and that those who had been the plantation and slave owners were now going to be the minority. That is nearly impossible for anyone to deal with easily. And the reaction to that, and then you can add immigration to that story. You can add so many other elements to that story, uh, women's suffrage to that story. right? The triumph of American democracy is the movement toward more inclusion. The challenge is the movement toward more inclusion. And I think that's what we're living with today. We've never had a more diverse Texas in our life than we have now. We're the first majority minority state of any significant size. We're the leading edge of the country. And that's why we're seeing the politics we're seeing. Is the key factor, does it boil down to voting? I think voting is not the only factor, but it, enca it encapsulates so many things, Jim, right? Voting is not simply getting to choose your representatives. It's a stake that you have a right to say what the future of your country is. If you don't vote, then others get to determine your future for you, which is how over history the vast majority of people have lived. The American experiment, again, back to Lincoln, is that everyone gets say. We're all shareholders. And how do we know we're shareholders? Because we get to vote. And if you don't get to vote, you're not a shareholder. This is what's always annoyed my son, who's now just turned 18 and just voted for the first time on Monday. Because he would say to me when he was 16, Zachary, and he said this on the podcast a number of times, he said, I'm 16, don't I have a stake? Why am I excluded? And he would say, why does someone 85 get to make a decision about the future of our country and not me as a 16-year-old? If I can tell a story, we wrote an article about this, he and I, that we published in The Hill, in a widely read newspaper around Washington. And he wrote it with me, and they refused to put his name on it. I said, why won't you put my son's name on this? He wrote it with me. He said, well, we don't publish things by people under 18. Um, so so the, the point here is his anger, I thought, manifested what our democratic ideals are, that everyone should have a say. It doesn't mean you get your way, but you have a say. And I think voting encapsulates that better than anything else. 
Let me just mention, uh, Dave, you mentioned the podcast. You left out a really important part, and that's his co-host, and that's his son, who is just the most phenomenal poet. So really do listen to the, to, to the podcast. A lot of people listen. You, he you just celebrated the 200th plus episode. That's correct. And Zachary has a poem at the start of the podcast. And a lot of people, when I travel around the country, will say, oh, I listen to your podcast. I listen to your son's poem. And then I don't listen to anything more. <laughs> I'm not even a part of it. <laughs> so one of the things I found really interesting in the book, and by the way, don't leave without a copy. You'll stick around to sign it, of Absolutely. course. Absolutely. I'd love signing it. Is I really... As, as we joked, when I lived in Tunisia, I took American history by correspondence course, so you know <laughs> that's an issue. But I was amazed that recently freed slaves and 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 other blacks voted high percentage, yes. higher percentage really than white. That's correct. And tell us who were the senators of Mississippi. Just take a minute or two and sort of position how much. Flex freedom they had, and then how it was taken away. That's right. So uh, after the Civil War, in the first few months and years, uh, African Americans didn't just uh, embrace democracy. They did everything they could to be participants. And there's also no evidence they sought to exclude anyone else. Uh, about 100,000 of the 4 million slaves had served in the Union Army. And this is quite extraordinary. It is actually a similar story to World War II. I wrote a book on Henry Kissinger years ago, and he was part of a large cohort of Jews who became American, actually, in the US Army during World War II, ironically going back to Germany wearing US Army uh, uniforms. This is true for more than 100,000 slaves who go into the US, Ar US Army, the Union Army, uh, illiterate. They go into the Union Army never having been wage earners. And they very quickly become literate wage earners in the Union Army and some of the most effective troops. Ulysses Grant has a transformation watching this. Uh, it's very rare to see this as a historian. Most people don't change their views a lot once they turn 30, unfortunately. Uh, Ulysses Grant goes into the war thinking Jews and African Americans are inferior. He believes everything that he's told in Illinois and Ohio about this. He comes out of the war because, and he's seen something different. He's seen the courage, the commitment of these individuals. He says, I see slaves who have come in and become sophisticated soldiers in almost no time. After the war, we have pictures of some of these uh, extraordinary individuals. After the war, they want to be Democrats, lowercase d, as much as anyone else. They find ways to walk miles upon miles to vote, to stand in line, and to push forth their own candidates for office. And there are more African Americans elected to Congress, to the Senate, and especially to state legislatures between 1866 and 1870, then there will be again until 1970. Until 1970. And by the way, the election of 1868, which is the election of Ulysses Grant and many of these African Americans in Congress, it is one of the fairest, freest, most peaceful elections in US history, in part because the US Army, the Union Army, is still in the South supervising the election. Why does that stop? Um, it, it stops because large numbers of non-African American groups in the South take up violence against African American, immigrant, Jewish, and other voters. And the Union Army is withdrawn from the South. 
And so uh, we have a major regression. By uh, 1880, 1890, you will have parts of Mississippi that had elected African-American senators and congresspeople that now have uh, electorates that are 60% African-American, where in fact 70 to 80% of the voters are white. And it's not because African-Americans don't want to vote. That's the point. Mm -hmm. The same people who had voted 10 years ago are being prevented from voting. We become, by the early 20th century, and again, I love our country, but we can be better. We become, by the early 20th century, one of the greatest democracies with one of the worst voting records. We become enormously creative and violent at stopping people from voting. And in Texas, that was a really big issue. Talk about the white primary. So uh, how many, I'm curious, how many people have heard of the white primary here? Not many, yeah. Wow. How many people had Texas history in high school? Okay, so there's the problem. It's not taught. There's the problem, right? So Alexander Watkins Terrell, or you say Terrell. Well, I, only because I want to call my wife by her name. Right, you know? but you don't want to associate her with this no, guy. No. <laughs> Alexander Watkins Terrell is one of a number of figures I uh, chronicle in chapter three of the book. Uh, in chapter three of the book, I focus on these figures I call exiles. These are Confederate leaders, highly regarded people at their time, whose names we've largely forgotten, though Terrell has a county named after him, uh, who don't surrender. These individuals uh, take about 50,000 Confederate soldiers and officers to Mexico to join the army of Maximilian, who is a French-installed emperor. So they join a royalist army to fight against the United States, and they bring their slaves with them. That's why they've gone. And, and by the way, I, I'll just use this moment to say, don't believe anyone who says the Civil War is not about slavery. I'll tell you why you shouldn't believe that. I've spent a lot of time doing research on it. They, at the time, say it's about slavery. Let's take them at their word. Right? They go and they take their slaves with them to Mexico. Others go to Brazil. One of these fellows that I chronicle, Alexander Watkins Terrell, he's relevant to all of us because after Maximilian loses, He's actually shot by the uh, Republican forces in, um, in Mexico. The famous Edward Manet painting many of you have seen. It's in the, I think, uh, Musée d'Orsay of him being shot. We have an image of it in the book. Um, Terrell and the other exiles come back to the US. Terrell himself comes back to Texas, gets elected the Democratic leader of the state Senate. He was part of the secession. Then he joined a foreign army against the US. That's the definition of treason, right? comes back, declares himself a hero, gets pardoned by President Andrew Johnson, and now we get to the white primary. As the leader of the Democratic Senate in our great state of Texas, that man writes the election laws. Who do you think was excluded? He creates what is known as the white primary that everyone in Texas should know about. From the late 1870s until 1944, until the very end of World War II, there was one dominant party in Texas, the Democratic Party. Everyone knows that. The Democratic Party had its primary every two years. In the Democratic primary, officially, only whites could vote. And the argument was that, yes, they're voting rights for elections, but this is not an election. It's a private primary. Legally, it was similar to a club vote. And the Supreme Court supported that. The Supreme Court, time and again, supported that. It only changes in 1944 with the end of World War II, Roosevelt's influence on the court, and that great hero, uh, Justice Robert Jackson, 
Smith versus Allwright is the case in 1944. It takes the Supreme Court to reverse what this Confederate had done in our, tech, in our state to prevent any African-American, any Jew, Jews are considered non-white then, Catholics were considered non-white, from having any decision-making authority in who the candidates in our elections were until 1944. And the point that I really want to emphasize here is this is someone who was a traitor under the 14th Amendment. He should have had no governing role, but he was pardoned, and too many people said, let's just move on. I'm sorry, you can't just move on. When people break the law, they have to be held accountable. Otherwise, they come back and they do the bad stuff again. I want to get your thoughts on this today. Someone sent me an article by Victor Davis Hanson. I don't know if you've seen it yet. I haven't. It, I know him, though. Yeah, it, yeah. It, he is a scholar, a fellow at the Hoover Institute, affiliated with Stanford University. And one of the concerns that, that I've been feeling is that I think most of this audience feels that there are some threats to democracy. But it's becoming politicized. Mm. And in this article, this is how it starts. The Democrats, after the midterms, will soon chant democracy is dying because they are terrified it is thriving as never before. And so when we are talking with people and saying there is this assault on democracy, how do you respond to someone like Victor Davis Hanson? I, I don't think to diagnose challenges or an assault on democracy is being political. <clears throat> I think what it is, is it's analyzing what we see uh, in front of us. On January 6, 2021, a group of individuals tried to break into the Capitol. In fact, they did. And their avowed intent, in their own words, was to stop the functioning of the government and to stop the certification of votes. That's a challenge to democracy. That had happened at the state level before. One of the points I make in our book is that we, we actually have, we've had coups before coup in Colfax, Louisiana, 1873, when a white mob led by the sheriffs in the nearby county came in and overthrew an African-American government, assassinating all the leaders. Coup in Wilmington, North Carolina in 1898. We've had coups. We've never had it at the federal level. Uh, so that in and of itself is a challenge. And then when we see rising violence, intimidation at the voting booth, that's not a, to, to diagnose that, that's not a political statement. That's, that's the reality. Of, of things, when we see people who are not acknowledging that they've lost an election when they've lost. Uh, that, that's a challenge to democracy. I, it, there's just, there's no other way around it. Joe Biden won eight million more votes. You, know, you can like it or not like it. That's, that's the reality. There has been zero evidence to the contrary. Zero, right? And so when someone says, I'd love to hear you come up with some evidence. If you've got some evidence, show it. You, you're the only one in the world who's found it, right? It went to, to numerous cases. There's no evidence of any significant fraud that changed the election. When people are refusing to acknowledge the reality of an election, you can be angry about it and not like it. That's a challenge to democracy. And when that is encouraged in people, uh, what I've seen in my students who are not Democrats or Republicans, my students hate both parties. They're very sensible. They want to solve problems. What I see in my students is a, a world they're in right now where every step of the way they feel things are being done to make them less capable of having any say in our society. 
They don't feel they get to actually elect representatives even when they get to vote because of gerrymandering. We're in a situation, I'm quoting conservative justices now, where the leaders choose the people, the people don't choose the leaders. Those are all empirical facts. And in fact, there is true um, against Democrats or Republicans as they are on the other side, right? I think Texas is gerrymandered against uh, Democrats. New York State is gerrymandered against Republicans. And how has gerrymandering changed? It's gotten much worse now, in part because of computers that allow us to, at an incredibly detailed level, pick out particular houses. But it's also gotten worse since the Civil War because it's become normalized as a way of conducting our politics. We've had gerrymandering going back to the 18th century, but it was, it was assumed to be an illeg illegitimate thing you didn't talk about. Mm -hmm. It becomes the foundation, I'm sorry to say, for our politics after the Civil War because it's a way of groups that are in power holding on to power. We develop a counter-majoritarian norm, which is to say I will set up districts so that the majority, if the majority is not like me, does not actually get say. That's said explicitly in the documentation, and it is said by the Democrats then. I'm not talking about Republicans today. It's the Democrats in this state who invent gerrymandering in the way we think about it. So it's gotten worse in its intentions, and then you add technology to that, Jim. Uh, and uh, you know, look at Harris County, look at Travis County, look at the makeup of the population in, the, in those counties, and then look at who the elected mm -hmm. leaders are. The worst is Wisconsin, though, right? Every statewide office in Wisconsin right now, it might change in November, as of right now, every statewide elected office, every single one in Wisconsin has a Democrat, but the Republicans have a two-thirds control over the state legislature, even though Democrats won, I think it's 53% of the votes for the state legislature last time. New York State is not quite as bad, but it's almost as bad in reverse. So I'm really not making a one-party argument here. So let's talk to, you know, I emailed about this. Little point of trivia, Judge Michael Luddick was my um, dorm advisor in college. That's yeah. amazing. That's amazing. And he has signed on for a Supreme Court case. It's going to be heard on December 7th of all dates called Moore v. Harper. And if you would take a minute to explain what that is and why it really does show that there is an assault potential really serious impact on a democracy. So Moore v. Harper is a case that surrounds the question of whether state legislatures have the ability to make election laws that are non-reviewable by courts. And the argument is that the Supreme Court talks about the state legislatures running elections. I thought the Supreme Court, that the Constitution talks about state legislatures running elections, and so that therefore they should have the right to do that in an unaccountable way to any courts. Um, I was asked about this earlier today, too. And you know, the interesting thing about this case is that it has drawn uh, pretty strong opposition, this proposition that the state legislatures, I think it's North Carolina, that's the one in question, that they could act in an unfettered way. It's drawn opposition from both left-leaning and very conservative judge, judges like Judge Luddick. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's because <laughs> of what seems to me just blatantly obvious as a historian. I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not going to comment on the legal elements. Uh, at every moment in our history, everything state legislatures have done with elections has always been reviewable by courts. The role of federal courts is to assess that state legislatures and the federal legislature are operating in accord with the Constitution. It's called judicial review. And there's not a moment I can think of when courts didn't do that. 
So why there would be an argument now that they could do that, it's an effort to make it so that state legislatures can change elections if they want. And, and I warn anyone, uh, not only is this historically and legally questionable, it seems to me, I mean, it's a road to disaster because w one side alone won't do that. If you think it might help you in one state, all you're doing is empowering someone in another state to do the opposite. That's why it's a real challenge to democracy because it basically, it's trying to say that those people in the state legislature have the right to overrule how the people have voted in a particular election. What could be more undemocratic than that? I mean, how patently ridiculous is it that, that, that someone would think that the vice president could actually overturn the election? The fact that anyone would advocate that? And I love when I hear people advocate that, and I say, okay, so Kamala Harris gets to determine who our next president is? Is that really what you want? Well, you couldn't have a more conservative judge than Mike Ledick, and he says, without question, this case is the most significant one in the history of our nation for American democracy. Wow. So I see Nikki McQuiston there, and she always whispers in my ear when we're doing the show, get solutions quickly. You got two <laughs> minutes left. Well, we have about five minutes, I think, right, Kirsten? But talk about what in the heck do we do? Constitutional amendment, is that one thing? I, I, I think there are some things we can do. I'm an optimist. This is a book that's filled, obviously, with some strong medicine. Uh, but I'm an optimist. I, first of all, we have to be optimists. If you're not optimistic, the bad guys win, right? Because they want you to be disillusioned and give up. If you give up the other, this was always the Nazi strategy. It wasn't to get everyone to follow, it was to get everyone to give up, right? So whatever side you think is wrong, if you give up and you're not optimistic, then you're letting that side, wherever you sit, uh, win, win the debate. I'm optimistic because I think the gift of the last six years is that it's, it's, it's unmasked things we weren't seeing. It's much harder to deny all the things we're talking about now. I see that in my students. They ask such good questions. Do they know the details of the white primary? No. But do they see the problems in our society? Yes. And I say that's a good thing. I want those I love to see how they can make themselves better. And I think there are some things we can do. So one of the things I argue for in the conclusion to the book when I come out of the 1880s and come back to the present is uh, it's about time we have a constitutional amendment and we all advocate for it for a right to vote. Uh, we have a First Amendment, which I think all of us in this room revere. First Amendment is the cornerstone of our democracy. Congress shall make no law, nor shall a state legislature take away someone's right to free speech or freedom of religion. It's very hard to censor someone. The burden of proof is against you, as it should be. That's not the way it is in Russia or China, but that's the way it is here. That protects our democracy. Why don't we have the same protections for voting? We have a 15th Amendment, and I show this in the book, where there was an intentional effort not to make it as universal. The 15th Amendment only says you can't deny someone the right to vote based on race. You can deny it for all kinds of other reasons. And we become remarkably creative at doing that. Poll taxes, you've all heard of those. Literacy tests, counting the jelly beans in a jar. But onerous registration requirements, all kinds of things. 19th Amendment says you can't take away someone's right to vote based on sex, but you can still use other mechanisms. 26th Amendment, 1971, says you can't take away someone's right to vote if they're 18 or older based on age. But you, if you don't use age, if you don't use race, if you don't use sex, you can take away people's rights to vote for all kinds of other ways. And we do that. We do that. In Florida today, 
if you, are, if you were convicted uh, 20 years ago of being a drug dealer and you served your five years, you don't get to vote ever again. You don't get to vote ever again. In this state, an undergraduate came to me yesterday and asked me how she goes to register to vote. <clears throat> she can't. You have to register October 11th. People say, well, she should have been prepared. Do you know any 18-year-old who prepares a month in advance for anything? <laughs> you know what I, I said to her? Sorry, you can't vote, but if you want a gun, go get one. <laughs> right? I'm not against gun ownership. I would just like the same rights for voting. Let's at least make those uh, equivalent. You know, when we went into Germany and Japan, we created a right to vote in those societies. <laughs> they have better voting protections because of us than we have in our own society. So let's start there. Let's create a right to vote, a constitutional right to vote, same language as the First Amendment. Every piece the same, just substitute speech for voting, protecting everyone's right to vote. Let's have limits on gerrymandering, which both parties abuse. Create expert panels. We do this in Austin, and many cities do this. It works pretty well, right? You create a principle which says we want the most competitive districts. Do everything you can to create 5149 districts, and then put a group of experts, geographers, demographers, in power to propose the most competitive districts after each decennial census. That's what the Germans do. Hmm. Works pretty well. So those are a variety of things. I know you're all thinking, well, this will never happen. No, it'll happen if we start arguing for it yeah. and force those who are against it to try to explain. Does, I mean, I'm sure they'll find a way, but those who oppose the right to vote, do they really want to stay there not for voting? I, it's very hard to defend that we don't have a constitutional amendment for a right to vote. Let's get out there and make the case for that. So before we open it up, one of the things that we talked about earlier today was the obstacles that are put before our teachers in high school. Uh, what they can teach their, frankly, concern, or I'll even say fear, yes. about how they could be fired for saying the wrong thing. What do we do about that? I'm so glad you brought that up. And I know we have some teachers in the audience who, who and first of all, thank you, all of you who are teachers, who support teachers. It, I mean, it's the most important profession and the one we spend the least time rewarding and supporting, right? In fact, we just blame teachers for everything. Mm -hmm. uh, it's terrible. And that's not new. I have a colleague, William Reese, wonderful historian of education. He says, we've been doing this since the founding. There's nothing more American than blaming the teachers and then underpaying them for it. Um, I, I think uh, what does not work is to say that we want people only to learn a happy history of the United States. That's not patriotic. That's not patriotic, because then they don't understand their own society. They don't understand uh, what they're doing. And then they make dumb mistakes, right? Uh, during the first impeachment, the um, Mike Pence office, uh, the vice president's office, put out a piece saying that the members of the House should show the same courage as Edmund Ross did during the first impeachment in 1868 that I discuss in the book, because he was a Republican who voted against impeaching uh, Andrew Johnson. Turns out Edmund Ross was bribed. Mm. Everyone knows it, except the vice president's office. <laughs> They should know the facts, right? I mean, there's just there's just a basic basic element there. Uh, they might have been right on their general point, but uh, you know, get your facts right. Giving people a happy history is not actually preparing them for the world. Giving them a history that trashes our institutions is not preparing them for the world. Our students need to see 
our society in its aspirations, in its greatness, and in its limitations. And they need to recognize the many mixed events and activities that have brought us to where we are. Let me say it. Slavery is as important to the history of our country as the Constitution. In fact, they are one and the same. Right? The Civil Rights Movement is as important to our country right, as labor movements, as World War II, as all of these things. So, so what should we be doing? I think we should be doing this actually in the way that people run successful businesses. Hire the best teachers. Find the best young people and reward them for having the skills and the passion to be teachers. Train them, free them to do their job, and then keep retraining them in the way we do with lawyers and doctors, with certification they have to go to every five years or whatever. The problem I find, I will tell you, I work with probably more than 1,500 teachers a year through Gilda Lehrman Institute in New York that I'm on the board of and Humanities Texas. The issue with teachers is not indoctrination. I promise you, they're not indoctrinating students. They're just trying to get them to listen. <laughs> and they don't have the material. It's ignorance. Our teachers are not as well trained as our doctors and lawyers are. It's time we train them. Hire the best, invest in training them, let them do their jobs, then assess the outcome, and then keep retraining them during their careers. Micromanaging from the left or the right isn't going to work. And, and the truth is, most teachers will tell you, many of you know this, they don't listen to that stuff anyway. Where it matters is when it creates a chilling effect. What teachers will tell me, what Zachary's teachers in public high school in Austin will tell me now is, they haven't changed the way they're teaching because of the Texas legislature one way or another, but they're a little more careful about saying certain things because they don't want a parent to come and complain. Exactly, and being the newspaper. Yeah. Well, let's, let's open it up. I think Gail Kopman is nodding her head in agreement with you. And before we open it up, let me just thank Liz uh, for giving me the privilege and the joy of sitting in this chair. You're doing a great job, and it's fun to be your partner on some of these things. Yes. Kirsten usually, as you all know, doesn't carry the mic. But I said, I'm not doing this unless she's giving me my cues. So take me back. <laughs> so Kirsten, take it away. And remember, what did we say about questions? Short. They start with what, where, when, why. And it would be such fun to cut someone off. What, where, when, why. OK, I've given the beginning. Uh, you mentioned 2016. You mentioned six years ago with the issue that uh, started that gives you concern, 2016 was the 2016 presidential election. Uh, does that, could it be argued with any degree of validity that th the uh, reaction of distrust of elections started with the Democratic Party, started with the uh, Russian influence the fact that uh, the they uh, what was it uh, the Trump campaign colluded, colluded with Russia that was proven after three years under the uh, the uh, Mueller report not to be true and yet there are people that still don't accept it and I get to cut Ray off. Thank you, Ray. And let's hear your response. <laughs> it's a great question. It's a great, Ray, and it's so good to see you again. Um, it's a, and it's good to see you in action again, Yo, Mr. Falk. We're family. <laughs> <laughs> the hammer, we call him. Uh, so uh, let, let me take us back, actually, if I might, to, to my book for a second, to 1876, which is an election we still don't know who won. 
Uh, people have been contesting and saying elections were unfair for a long time. And it was the Democratic Party. I thought that's where you were going. You were going to say the Democrats of the 19th century. Um, they're, they're, this is an old story. of the In the 19th century, everything we're seeing today was being said about elections. The use of fraud as an epithet, claims that the wrong people were voting, claims that external entities were influencing our elections. That ends, to some extent, in the late 19th century when we develop more faith in our elections. It's actually a progressive set of reforms to create more professionalized administration of our elections. Do you know that in the 1870s, you know how you would have voted? Someone would have given you a pre-completed ballot with a color on it, and they would watch you vote to make sure you voted the right way. And if you voted the right way, the party boss took you out for lunch, got you drunk, and you kept your job. If you voted the wrong way, the party boss took you out, beat you, and you lost your job. Uh, th that's how elections were run in this period, right? And campaigning was in saloons, by the way. We come out of that. That was progress. I think what has set us back uh, is that um, we have had uh, some of the same problems we had in the mid-19th, late-19th century, where our elections are so close and so complex, it's hard to know who won. The reason our elections become clearer for a long time, when I was a kid in the 70s, and 1980 election, there's no dis debate. It's not that the Democrats are happy Reagan won. He just runs so big. How can you argue against that? Right? Close elections are bad in a democracy, and especially our system where there's a popular vote and the electoral vote is different. 1876, Tilden won the popular vote. He didn't become president. I hope you all knew that. There was no President Samuel Tilden, right? Benjamin Harrison lost the popular vote also in 1892, yet he became president, right? So our convoluted system is part of the problem. Uh, I think accusations of foreign meddling and all kinds of stuff, that's part of the problem too. But what did make the 2016 election different, I would say, Ray, was that you had a candidate who said, before the voting even started, I'm not necessarily going to abide by the results. And he motivated people. What scared me were crowds of people saying, we will not abide by the results. We only will accept the result if our guy wins. And the normalization of that rhetoric, it's being said, I think, by the, one of the gubernatorial candidates in Arizona right now. That's, that's, that, that is, that's not the only cause. I'm not a monocausal guy. I'm not blame one side guy. But that is out of the norm, at least for the past 70 to 80 years. And that shook me. And I have to say, it was a racialized argument. What he was basically saying is there's no way that I can have all these white supporters and yet someone else could win. Because he's winning. I mean, Trump won the white male vote, but he just didn't win the other vote, rest of the votes in, the, in our society, right? So that was not the only cause, but that was one of the major exasperating causes for where we are today. And we're going to hear a question from over here. Sir. <clears throat> Who has questions? Uh, thank so you. Get a sense. Uh, I, 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 I know you're an accomplished historian, but I'll ask you to be a futurist for a minute. Okay, oh gosh. Discuss uh, your study of the last six years and how much trouble we're in. Can you give us your forecast for what's going to happen in the next six years? <laughs> wow. Uh, it's the right question. I just don't know if I have a good answer for you. The first thing I'd say is that we, we will be surprised. In, in the next six years, when, when we come back here and we're, we're sitting like we are today, uh, the issues that will motivate us most might not be the issues, probably won't be the issues we're, we're most focused on today. Uh, my prediction is that our democracy will survive, that um, we will continue to have some of these debates, but there will be forward movement in reforming our institutions slowly but surely. 
to address some of these issues. Reforming the Electoral Count Act of 1887 is a very good start there. Creating better methods for covering elections so we get better news on what's going on and there's less room for people to uh, tell lies. I think we will make some progress in those areas. What I fear most, though, is that we'll have external shocks that will make it harder for us to continue that process. Some of them will be environmental. Some of them will be environmental. Some of them will be foreign actors like Russia and China. I don't have to tell this group how significant those actors are in our world. And what I fear is that those external shocks often empower bad behavior within our country. I actually have reasonable faith in Americans to address some of these issues. I don't have faith that foreign actors, it's not that they're going to meddle in our election, but that things that they do will make it harder for us at home. Perhaps Saudi Arabia is what you're thinking yes. about. Yes, and oil. <laughs> yes. Uh, can we go back to education for just a moment? Please. Talking about the teachers and the looking at it as a business and educating them, hiring them, training them further and letting them go, and then you said assess the results. How do you assess the results? Oh, gosh. I think that's actually the easiest and the hardest at the same time. It's hard because it's very difficult to do it in a non-laborous way. But it's very easy in that if I go and sit in a classroom and then I talk to the kids who are in that class, I know whether they're learning or not. And you know how I find out? It's not by asking, does the teacher teach the things I agree with? I ask and have a sense, are they thinking? Are they taking in different perspectives? And all of you do this as parents. You all were assessing as parents and grandparents whether your kids have good teachers or not. You don't actually really care what the politics of the teachers are, do you? You care is, are my children or grandchildren, are their minds expanding? Do I see them learning critical skills? Are they writing better? Are they becoming more articulate? Are they coming, becoming more mature in being able to see different viewpoints? We can assess that. The problem is it takes a lot of labor, and we don't want to spend the money to do that, right? I never have trouble. I, res I, I assess three or four new professors every year at the university. I think I'm pretty good at knowing whether they're good teachers or not. Just takes about 15 minutes sitting there. By the way, it's the same with hotels, right? You go into a hotel in 15 <laughs> minutes, you know whether it's a good hotel or not, right? I might not be able to quantify it. I can tell you from the front desk, from all the other, it's the same thing. Same thing with the speaker, and you pass. Okay. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> Hi, Jeremy. What is the current administration doing that is an assault on or challenge to democracy? The current administration? Yeah, a number of things, actually. I think it's a really, I think it's a really good question. Uh, I think one of the, the things that I disagree vehemently uh, with the, uh, the Biden administration uh, right now on is I don't think it's appropriate for our government in, in one form or another to be using its power to try to undermine uh, state governments. We should actually be trying to work to make state governments do their job better. I don't like the idea of the executive saying it's going to be my job to try to undermine. If the state governments are doing the wrong thing, pass legislation. Don't try to use the executive office. That's a, that's a, that I, I'm, I'm, against the, I'm for executive orders when executive orders are necessary to serve the national interest. I'm not for the use of executive orders in a way that's uh, getting around legislative change. And that's, that's, that's something that presidents, this is my prior book, right? That's something that presidents have been doing on both sides of the aisle since at least Richard Nixon, and probably, probably a little earlier. So my view is, 
when states, if Biden doesn't like what Abbott's doing, and I would often agree with Biden and his criticism of Abbott, don't try to use executive orders to get around that. Change the legislation. <laughs> Do the work of passing legislation not using executive power, which is constitutionally questionable. And why do I say that? Because if it's a president I disagree with, I don't want them to have that power either. Last question, unfortunately. And it's great, it's Lynn Minna. What about a legal requirement that all eligible voters had to, a legal requirement to vote, yeah. as in some Latin American countries? I, I love it. I, I actually agree with that. Uh, it's what they have in Australia, too. Uh, and I've talked to, I don't know as much about Latin America. I think Dee Smith, who's here, is more the expert on that than I am, and many of you are probably too. But um, in Australia, I know, it is required that you go to vote. You get fined if you don't go to vote. But here's the thing, you can go to vote and vote for none of the above. You don't have to, you don't have to vote for any of the candidates, but you have to show up and vote. And why I think that's a good thing is that it eliminates the whole point about trying to prevent people from voting. And here's how I think about it. I don't choose whether I have to file an IRS return every year, <laughs> right? That's what I have to do. I don't like it, <laughs> but I have to do it, right? And why isn't it the same? Uh, by the way, my son, who just voted for the first time on Monday, he voted the first day he could vote at 18. He just turned 18. Zachary uh, pointed out to me he had to register to vote, of course, and he had to go and vote, and he had a choice on that. He didn't have a choice on selective service. You know, the state of Texas automatically registers you for selective service, but they don't automatically register you to vote. If we had mandatory voting as we have mandatory selective service, we would eliminate this problem, and then you could still go to the voting booth and say, I don't like any of the candidates, I vote for none of them. And I think that would make for a better society, it would eliminate many of the other problems uh, we have. So thank you for suggesting. So, thank you, my friend. So before I turn it over to Liz, uh, I've always enjoyed coming up here and saying, I read the book, it's a great book, and you all should take it home. And I really mean it about this one. And you sent me an advanced copy. I mean it about almost everyone. <laughs> and um, I read the book very quickly, because it was just so good. And then I just, I couldn't resist writing a, a, a note to Jeremy about it. And um, lo and behold, it was really pretty funny. I got the copy about a month ago, and I just threw it on my desk because I knew I was going to work still with the advanced copy. And it's on my desk, and I'm on a Zoom call, and I look down, and I go, oh, my God, that's my blurb. <laughs> and so as I wrote then, this book should be required reading for every member of Congress and high school history student. Christmas is coming up, so give it to some students. It does a marvelous job of connecting the post-Civil War world with what we're experiencing now. So I hope you'll honor Gail Cotman and Jeremy by picking up a copy of the book. Thank you, Chip. Thank you so much. So I think you just admitted that you were lying about a lot of the books. <laughs> well, I think this was probably a really eye-opening conversation for a lot of us, and I think most of us could say that we are looking forward to that slow and incremental change that you described. What a great conversation. Thank you very much.